This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It is the third week of August, and this week, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris officially became the Democratic nominees for president and vice president. This was the first fully virtual political convention. The roll call of states, normally a raucous process on the convention floor, was conducted via satellite, with every state's delegation voting from a scenic location, or at least in most states, if they have scenic locations. Rhode Island's Democratic Party chairman brought a huge plate of fried calamari to the beach. That's the state's official appetizer. To talk about this convention and whether it was effective for the Democrats, I want to bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by Megan McArdle, columnist of the Washington Post on the right, and on the left, Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hi there. Uh, so, Dorian, conventions are always kind of funny, right? Because they, they used to be for picking the candidate, and they were really an internal meeting of the party where people would get together and argue and decide who should be the presidential candidate. Now they're sort of a four-day infomercial for the candidate, and now you had to have this completely new format for that this year. Did it work? Did this make a good case for Biden and Harris? I think it worked really, really well, considering the stress and anxiety of not being able to meet in person. And we know that a lot of politics is schmoozing right, of being in person and talking and having conversations in the hallways, between speeches and events. Nonetheless, I think this really, really worked well, despite some of the technical glitches, but it came off as a very realistic portrayal of America and the vision and values that the Democrats wanted to project to the rest of the country. I was especially struck, I have to say, by the number of ordinary people and voters that had a chance to tell their stories versus the traditional elite speeches that we usually get in these kind of conventions. So I think it was very effective. And I think, frankly, with the keynotes each night in terms of whether it's Michelle Obama or President Barack Obama or the vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris or, frankly, Joe Biden on the final evening, I think it actually was very compelling watching. Megan, what did you make of the convention? Uh, well, I've, I think it didn't work that well. I mean, I, I sort of question whether conventions are, are really that helpful to, to parties at this point anyway. I mean, you see convention bumps in the polls and then they pretty much dissipate uh, and leaving the candidates back where they were. I think this was particularly ineffective. Um, you had these weird formats where Joe Biden interviewed people from the party, uh, which served to illustrate why Joe Biden does not have a job as a TV anchor. Conventions were already kind of pointless, and this just highlighted just how pointless they are. What they really served as was a networking opportunity for people who were professional politicians or professional political campaign and or professional pundits, right? That's who was actually going to these things. Um, that was what was actually creating the buzz. And when you took all of that away, what you had was a bunch of really nice, well-meaning people kind of staring like deer in the headlights into Zoom cameras uh, while they faced a national audience. So I I would be very surprised to see that this is going to generate like a huge campaign bump. That said, I think it w- it made Joe Biden look like a perfectly likable guy. I'm fine with voting for it, but that's that's about all it did. Dorian, to, to Megan's point, saying that she thinks the, the messages out of this were a little bit muddled, what, what was the message out of this convention? Um, in particular, I'm, I, I've seen a lot of griping from people on the left in the Democratic Party about the lineup of speakers, that it was heavily focused toward moderates and even some Republicans crossing over to say why they're voting for Joe Biden. Uh, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was limited to this role where she was nominating Bernie Sanders and didn't even get to really speak about what Joe Biden means to her, why she would be voting for him. What did you see as the message that this put out there? Uh, and, 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 and is that message getting through to the public? I do share a critique, by the way, with my colleagues on the left around the missed opportunity. And I want to specifically raise up the issue of Latinx voters. There was a huge missed opportunity with both ALC and, frankly, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, who you might remember was also a presidential candidate, along with Joe Biden, was left off the speaking roles of the DNC. And this is points to a particular problem around enthusiasm with Latinos. We know from some a recent poll from PBS NewsHour NPR Marist that shows Joe Biden underperforming. Only 59% of Latinos right now are saying they'd vote for him over Trump uh, compared to 66% who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So huge missed opportunity not having rising stars in the party of AOC and, and Castro. And I would add Stacey Abrams in a larger role, frankly, that could have really, really... Um, hit it out the park, so to speak. What was the overall message, though, I think, was this theme of we the people. It was a celebration across four days of what the current America looks like. And I dare anyone next week as they watch the Republican National Convention to see if there are similar kinds of images of a diverse multiracial population with some values and a vision of what the future could look like versus division. We're going to hear a lot of division. We're going to hear a lot of Um, you know, griping. And this was much more of a positive projection of what the future could look like and should look like. I I sort of think with the choice of the convention speakers, in a lot of ways, it doesn't really matter what they actually said, because most people are not going to be watching the convention gavel to gavel. And to the extent that they do, they're probably strong Democratic partisans whose vote is already locked up. It's about what sort of coverage it generates on TV news and in newspapers. And the purpose of having people like John Kasich speak at the convention, it doesn't even really matter what he said. It's that you get these headlines about Republicans crossing over for Joe Biden, creating permission for swing voters to swing. And the way Democrats won in 2018 in the midterms, overwhelmingly, it was about voters changing their their positioning rather than about shifts in turnout. And so I think, you know, I, I think it's part of a broader strategy that Biden's had all the way through of trying to build a, a, as broad a coalition as possible, trying to rebuild some of the Obama coalition voters who had voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and then voted for Trump in 2016, while also retaining the suburban voters uh, where Hillary Clinton had significant gains in certain areas in 2016. Those gains were then expanded on in, in 2018. So I think it's partly the, you know, why you would have less featuring of some of those progressive figures. I, I think it's a, a political calculation on the part of the Biden campaign that you want to do as little as possible that might alienate people by making Biden something specific other than not Trump. Um, and the, the the calculation is that those progressive voters are you know are so anti-Trump that uh, that that they're already in the bag. And I think that that's I, I understand why progressives don't like that calculation, but I think as a, as a matter of political strategy, it's pretty sound. Look, there's two things that you can do with a convention, right? You can use it to pull the party together and bind the party together, or you can use it to try to go out and get new votes. Now, on the one hand, I think that it's actually probably not going to generate that many new votes. But on the other hand, I think that it certainly could lose votes. The way that you are going to keep the suburbs is by convincing them that you're not actually going to let Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come and jack their taxes up sky high and, you know, ad infinitum all of the the green 
Green New Deal and so forth. That's not what they want. What they want is moderation that's going to keep the status quo pretty much intact. Well, you know, I mean, softening the edges, maybe redistributing some money from the top to the bottom, but not like fundamentally reorganizing society. Now, there's an argument about whether the suburbanites are right about that, whether they're bad people, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that you actually, if, if you need those voters in your coalition, and the Democrats do, they cannot win this election without the suburbs um, because they've now lost white, blue-collar workers to the, to the point where they have to make that loss up somewhere. And it doesn't look like those workers are coming back this time around. So they have to keep the suburbs, which means they have to keep it kind of tame. And yes, that's absolutely obviously going to make the existing coalition partners sad. Um, it's going to make them angry. It's going to make them feel like they're being slighted, they're being taken for granted. And all of that is true. But the fact is, if you vote reliably for Democrats every single time, you do, to some extent, get taken for granted. And on the right, the evangelicals have the same complaint. They take us for granted. They don't really you know, give us what we need. Um, but the fact is, if you're not going to go ever and vote for Democrats, then they're going to take you for granted and they're going to treat you as a reliable vote. And then they're going to basically moderate in, in an attempt to go out and get votes they don't have in the bag. I, I think another aspect of the, of the appeal seeking to be as broad as possible was the extensive focus on on Biden personally uh, as a person of decency, as a person with experience, with grief, who can understand voters' losses. Um, I thought Ezra Klein had a really smart piece uh, this week about how the, the appeal is not so much about Biden being likable. It's about Biden liking the public, making people feel like he cares about them and that that's a real political strength for him. And, and Dorian, I think that, you know, again, that's a message that can appeal to people in a wide variety of, of, of of positions on the political spectrum, it also doesn't really have a lot of policy content. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I, I think it is something that is likely to appeal to people at a time when you have a president whose who's complete lack of empathy um, is, uh, is, is feeling so, uh, is, is, is being felt so acutely right now at a time of significant loss in the country. Well, I think it depends on what your theory of the case is in terms of what turns out voters and shapes voter behavior. If your assumption is that voters vote policy, we really didn't get that until the last day and, and some, of, some of that content was in Biden's speech. But if your theory is that people vote their values or their identity, I think the convention was actually a success in that regard because it did showcase a sharp contrast in terms of the very human flaws and strengths of a Joe Biden, his empathy, his dealing with trauma and grief, his commitment to fundamental American values versus a Trump. And we'll see how Trump shows up at the RNC. But I would say for those of us that lean on more on the side on most ordinary, most ordinary people vote their values and identity, as opposed to policy, people like us tend to vote on policy. And we assume that others do. I'm not sure that's the case. Let me also just agree with something Megan just said. I do think there are there's this notion of captured voters in both parties. I think she's absolutely right. Evangelicals are captured in the RNC. And so we'll see how much they try to rev up the base of their convention. I think the Democrats also know they have captured voters. They know Black voters can't go anywhere. They're not going to defect. So there was some signaling to Black voters overall. But I do think they also assume that Latino voters are also captured because they don't see them as going to Trump because he's been such an explicit um, scapegoating person around immigrants and Latinx voters. So I do think this notion of captured voters is really important to analyze both parties. 
And and there's some indication in the polls that one of the few groups that Trump has improved his standing with over the last four years is Hispanic voters, obviously still well behind with them, but but maybe having closed that gap a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Steve Bannon, who was arrested on a boat for his part in a scheme related to the We Build the Wall effort. These were these people advertising that they were going to privately construct a section of the border wall uh, if Congress and Mexico were not going to pay for it. Uh, they're in, in their promotion of this of this campaign. They claimed falsely that the money from the donors was all going to build the wall. It wasn't going into their pockets, but in fact, they were diverting a lot of the money to themselves, the government alleges. And so Bannon and three other of his associates in this in this uh, in in this scheme were arrested. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., who had a testimonial on the website for We Build the Wall, had to distance himself from it, and they claimed that uh, he had not authorized that testimonial. The president said, well, I always thought the wall needed to be a government project. Megan, why are conservatives so vulnerable to grifts like this? I mean, this project was always ridiculous on its face, and they still managed to raise $25 million. They built this big email database of all those those conservatives who would be receptive to this kind of ridiculous pitch, uh, which is valuable for all sorts of other people trying to do other things like this in this movement. Why did any of this work? That is a very good question. I wish I had a better answer. Um... You know, look, I think that to the extent that conservatives have been shut out of mainstream institutions like the media and academia, they have built parallel institutions that are explicitly conservative in a way that the like mainstream air quotes uh, institutions are not. Um, and that's led to a couple of things. I mean, first of all, they tend to fly under the radar of mainstream institutions. Um, but second of all, it means that there are these there are these really valuable lists of donors floating around of like ordinary everyday donors. Um, in a way that is less true outside of, say, the environmental movement um, and to some extent Planned Parenthood. I mean, those things do exist on the right, but they're not nearly as powerful in in part because, like, people higher up in the kind of intellectual apparatus tend to be members. They they donate to Planned Parenthood and so forth. uh, And so there's a little more scrutiny on them. So I think that's part of it. I also think that there's this now on the right inherent distrust of anything that the mainstream institutions say. And so people don't trust it. They don't trust the media. They don't trust the sources from which they might get information questioning uh, the legitimacy of this. And that feeds into an area where, the, yes, it is, it is ripe for fraud. Um, now, of course, we don't know. Uh, that this happened. I think that we don't, we, the, the allegations have not been proven yet. Um, I would say that even if the allegations are not proven, it is still ridiculous. <laughs> and, um, and that that is actually a problem for the right, that the right really needs to address and sort of build institutions that have more legit, have more kind of centralized legitimacy that can vet some of the stuff that's happening at the fringes better than is currently happening. Dorian, the, the thing that gets me about this is, you know, Bannon and his and his associates are ridiculous. The people who gave them this money are ridiculous. You can see other uh, institutions like this. I mean, the, the, the allegations against the NRA basically make it look like it was a scam on voters who care about gun rights, uh, taking that money and financing a lavish lifestyle for Wayne LaPierre and, and various other things for, for executives there. On the other hand, you know, Steve Bannon was a leader of a political movement that managed very improbably to get Donald Trump elected president of the United States of America. The NRA, in addition to appearing to be something of a grift, also has been an effective political organization pushing for 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 uh, for pro Second Amendment ends. So it, it it seems like you know you can laugh at conservatives who get it, who who are vulnerable to these sorts of scams, but it doesn't actually mean that it's not an effective political movement. Both things can be true, Josh. You can be a grift 
grifter and a crook and a plutocrat and be a successful political strategist. So there is going to have to be a reckoning on the right around why has the party been taken over by such grifters and crooks and plutocrats versus the true conservatives who, for the most part, believe in personal responsibility until they don't. And where is the personal responsibility here when it comes to these crooks at the top of the party? Let's take a break. I'll be back with Dorian Warren of the Center for Community Change and Megan McArdle of the Washington Post to talk about the post office in the November election. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right, and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right, and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abdurraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist at The Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. On Friday morning, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy testified before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee about recent mail delivery delays at the post office. DeJoy just started this job in June, and since then there have been reports from around the country about mail getting stuck in processing facilities, sometimes for days. Under DeJoy's leadership, the post office instructed letter carriers to leave mail unsorted and undelivered delivered, rather than incur overtime hours. This change is supposed to reduce labor costs at a post office that has been consistently posting financial losses, but of course, it also means people aren't getting their mail as fast as usual. And with a record number of Americans intending to vote by mail this fall, this has people concerned for obvious reasons about the timely delivery of ballots to and from voters. To talk about how to administer mail voting correctly, Rick Hassan joins us now. Rick is an expert in election law and the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. Hi, Rick. Good to be with you. Uh, So as I've been looking at this controversy over the post office, obviously people have reasons to be looking at what's happening there with a lot of suspicion. And some of the things that I see going around on Twitter, pictures of mailboxes being moved, locks that go on mailboxes at off hours, some of these seem to be normal practices at the post office that people are just hypersensitive about right now. What is your sense of the things that are happening there? What's a real problem for the election and for mail delivery more broadly? And what isn't a real problem? I think the important thing to recognize here is that it's going to be really hard to run an election with uh, so many more mail-in ballots, even apart from the post office. So many people have not used mail-in ballots before. So many uh, of the election administrators have never dealt with this kind of volume of mail before. We're seeing in the primaries lots of ballots being rejected because voters are not following the technical rules. And so I think there's a much bigger problem than the post office when it comes to vote by mail, which is that there's a real danger of disenfranchisement because uh, ballots are going to come too late, voters are not going to vote them right, 
and people's votes are not going to count. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me we've been seeing quite different experiences in different states, right? In some places, it's been very smooth. In other places, like in New York, you have these very high ballot rejection rates. You've also had issues where the ballots get sent out too late, and so a lot of voters are receiving them too late in order to send them back. So I mean, what are what are and what should state and local uh, election administrators be focused on as they try to make sure that whatever problems have arisen in the primary don't arise in the general? Is that just about sending everything out earlier? What do, what do you do so that people's ballots get counted? Well, so first, First of all, some states have unrealistic deadlines by which someone can request an absentee ballot. If it's six days before the election, the idea that you can request an absentee ballot, that it can be sent to you, you can fill it out and send it back in time for it to arrive, as it has to in some places by election day, is unrealistic. So states need to look at those cutoff dates. Uh, Beyond that, I think the message needs to be put out, I've been saying this a lot, flatten the absentee ballot curve. Uh, We need to spread out the return of these ballots. People should be requesting their ballots as soon as possible. And they should be given an opportunity for uh, the chance to cure if their ballot is rejected. One of the ways that they check to make sure that ballots are valid is that a signature match uh, is there between what's maybe what you signed at the DMV on one of those pin pads and what you put on your uh, ballot. And lots of ballots are rejected because somebody thinks that the signatures don't match. Only in some states do you have the opportunity to make sure your ballot can count if it's rejected for those technical reasons. And New York is a good example of some really arcane technical rules, like if you use a piece of scotch tape rather than using um, the env- licking the envelope and sealing it shut that way, your ballot won't count. So states need to figure out the rules so that voters can follow them. There needs to be a big voter education project over the next 75 days. Dorian, one of the reasons that, that that getting this administration right is important, aside from that we want everybody's vote to count, uh, is that there's going to be a big partisan gap in terms of how people vote this fall. A lot more Democrats than Republicans are saying that they intend to vote by mail in the November election. And so if you have a significantly higher rejection rate for absentee ballots than for than, than, and mail-in ballots than you do for ballots cast in person, that could erode some of the Democratic vote in this election, because disproportionately you would have Democratic votes being rejected there. So is for, have Democrats made a risky choice by encouraging so much mail-in voting uh, on their own side? Because you, you Republicans worried that the president's talking Republicans out of voting by mail, and that's going to cost them votes. But maybe it's better for Republicans if they're actually going and casting their ballots in person. I talk to black voters all the time, particularly in southern states. And I have to say, most of them are preparing to stand in very long lines for very long hours. They are preparing water and PPE and chairs for the elderly because they clearly understand what's going on here. It's not rocket science and it's not a hidden conspiracy. Um, You can see what Trump has said, particularly in Rick's op-ed in the New York Times. So the black voters I talk to are even more enthusiastic and mobilized to actually show up in person than they would have been in terms of vote by mail. And I think it's not lost on most black voters, the legacy of John Lewis and his passing of this year and his lifetime struggle of the right to vote. Folks are even more motivated. So this is actually risky for the Republicans and for the president to actually in such a blatant way to try to say vote by mail is fine for us when we do it. And hey, it's fine in Florida, but not for you other people. Well, I mean, I I think, Dorian, to that point, sometimes some of the attacks on voting have backfired by galvanizing members of the Democratic Party coalition. Um, But to the extent that, you know, ballots arrive and are rejected, that you that you motivated people to vote does not actually cause their their vote to count. So, I mean, obviously, you have there there are some voters who are expecting and intending to wait in those lines, but but other voters are intending 
to put their ballot in a mailbox and and count on that it will be counted. Absolutely. But I do think that there is going to be record turnout this year precisely because people are so motivated and there's lots of polling to show the enthusiasm for voting as just period. And yes, this is a concern. And so there is preparation. I make sure there are poll watchers to make sure that uh, secretaries of state at the state level are doing due diligence and counting um, voter absentee ballots or um, folks who want to show up early. I do think this is a real concern. And part of the problem here, um, which I wish there were more voices on the right to say there are fundamental things in a democracy and the right to vote is one of them, to say that just stop the shenanigans stop the messaging to try to discourage people to vote, which is one of the strategies here the president is using. It is a concern, though, and lots of people are thinking about it, um, as well as thinking about what happens when Trump loses the election and he decides that, say, that it was rigged and he won't leave office. Megan, to Dorian's point, one thing that Trump has unusually been saying out loud uh, is that if more people vote, that's bad for Republicans um, and that they, you know, that this, you know, will will never win another election if we have a voting regime like this. Uh, and can and conservatives, you know, they they have they they express concerns about fraud in voting, which I generally think are very overstated. But you don't usually hear them say out loud that they actually want a lower turnout. You do sometimes hear that from libertarians uh, who will explicitly talk about voters being ignorant and rationally ignorant. They, they don't know about the government. They don't know about it for good reason. Why would we encourage them to vote. They talk about a tyranny of the majority, where if people turn out and vote, they will vote other people's property into their own hands. So, I mean, is is that, you know, is is this a principle that the president is operating in, in line with? Because I, I do, libertarians are sort of the only group of people I ever really hear from who will defend the idea that fewer people voting is better. Um, well, I mean, I think we all, at least in some places, oppose the tyranny of the majority. I mean, in, in the 1950s South, segregation was a policy that had a majority of support from the Southern population. It was just grotesque and evil and wrong. Whether or not you can get a majority for it is, is and, and we quite properly say, we have constitutional um, guardrails that say you can't do that. We have constitutional guardrails that say that the majority cannot suppress the speech of the minority because it doesn't like it. Um, we have constitutional guardrails that say the majority cannot decide what religion everyone else gets to practice, right? I mean, I think no one actually believes in just total democracy. And so I think in that sense, that libertarians are saying, look, voters who are not that interested, who are not educating themselves on the issues, we don't just want people going to the polls and kind of casting a vote at random or casting a vote that's a vote like other people they know. Those aren't good ways to vote. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I don't think it's a a crazy and horrible position to take. But I think that sort of trying to connect this to any broader Republican uh, sentiment or broader Republican theory of government is just like a it's it's a rabbit hole the dead ended rabbit hole um, you're never getting anywhere that way. The bigger question I have is that uh, on the one hand Trump's Trump's words are more important because he is the president and because he is more likely to lose. But should he win? Should he say win the popular vote? Are Democrats going to accept the legitimacy of that? Are they going to believe that this election was decided fairly? Or is it going to be there were problems with the post office, there's voter suppression, there's X, Y, and Z? Are we now in a situation where neither side is actually prepared to accept the legitimacy of any election they lose? I fear we are getting close to that point if we are not there already. 
Well, I wrote a whole book that came out in February called Election Meltdown, making that exact point, that we've uh, reached the point where when my side wins, uh, the election was fair and square, but when the other side wins, it's because someone was cheating. And the president's rhetoric has, I think, ratcheted up the stakes and lowered voter confidence. Everyone is worried, if you look at uh, most recent polling, that the election is not going to be run in a fair way. And so really now, with just uh, two and a half months before the election, there are steps we need to take immediately to make sure that uh, we bolster both the ability to run a fair election and voter confidence because the democracy depends upon the idea that the losers agree that the election was fairly run and will fight another day. I mean, I think people don't realize how precarious our situation is now because we've had so many uh, decades of uh, of elections where even in 2000, where the loser ultimately accepted the result and the country moved on. And this is something that really worries me about the democratic reaction to what's happening at the post office. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think it's possible that Trump really does want to defund it so that they can't run elections, right? I, that is something I could totally believe him, him thinking would be a good thing, right? But that's, as far as I can tell, really not how this started. The $25 billion was not earmarked for elections and is not necessary, as far as we can tell, to run a, a fair election. Um, and, you know, Democrats may well have given him the idea, but they did that in the process of doing something that you're seeing increasingly, um, you know, even from people at the DNC, of just kind of either implying or coming close to stating outright that, that if Republicans win, it's only because they cheated. And I think that that is, you know, the post office started more as a symptom of that than an actual problem that needed fixing. Now it needs fixing because Trump jumped into the act. I, I'm not convinced that it, that this rhetoric is important uh, from either side. I mean, you know, the, in 2018, we had this Senate race in Arizona uh, where in the initial ballot count, uh, Martha McSally, the Republican, was ahead. But because of what, what Rick describes as the blue shift where Democrats tend to return their ballots later. And so as you continue counting, the, the votes tend to shift toward the Democrat. You ended up with Kirsten Cinema. She was in the lead and she won. And the president tweeted about how this was this was rigged and they were stealing the election from Martha McSally. But that didn't do anything. I mean, you know, the you, you had uh, and, and so so I think to the extent that, that you have these complaints, I think they're just a form of griping, mostly, that people, what they mean when they say the election was stolen, they mean, I don't like the outcome of the election. It doesn't mean that they're not actually, you know, that, that, that the government lacks legal authority to oversee people. Brian Kemp is the governor of Georgia, regardless of, you know, what uh, what pe- what Democrats stay, say about that uh, election being stolen from Stacey Abrams. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm just not convinced that this stuff is more than just whining. And I think the president will absolutely to the extent that he loses this election, talk about how it was unfairly stolen from him and mail-in ballots and blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, Rick, Dorian, can, can you tell me why I should be worried about what that means for the country? Because it seems to me that we're already, you know, we're already continuing to function in an environment where people say these things. Yeah, I strongly disagree with that point because I think Trump is very different than uh, the situation in Arizona where you didn't have the uh, losing candidates say that the election was stolen from her. A a better counterexample is Matt Bevin in Kentucky, lost the governor's race, claimed it was because of fraud, and for a couple of days, the uh, Kentucky legislature considered whether they should use their powers in the Constitution to take away the vote from the people and to have the legislature choose uh, the victors themselves. With Trump uh, and the kinds of ardent followers that he has, one of the concerns I have is that He's going to try to convince Republican legislatures in places like Florida and Arizona to take away the votes. And the Constitution gives the legislature the power to appoint presidential electors directly. I think, we're, you know, Trump 
has violated so many norms that I think this is a real danger and it's not just cheap talk the way you're suggesting. I would also just add that there is historical context here. The right historically from the founding of this country has only had two plays to hold on to power, exclusion and restriction. And Megan actually mentioned the tyranny of the majority in the 1950s South. Well, that's only if you assume there was democracy in the South. Black people didn't get the right to vote until 1965. So what we had in effect was explicit exclusion and authoritarian enclaves. We didn't really even become a full democracy until 1965. So this is a historic strategy of exclusion and restriction that has always been required to hold on to power for those on the right. Look, my point is that that if you had if you had allowed, I mean, like. I am in no way, right? This is obviously wrong and horrible, the the, the disenfranchisement of black people uh, prior to 1965. But even if you'd added them in, there were a minority of the population almost everywhere and support among whites for segregation was overwhelming. And so even if they had been voting, it's not clear that Jim Crow would have fallen without the anti-democratic and correct, morally correct and politically correct actions of the nor- basically northern elected officials who came in and said, no, I don't care what the majority wants. You can't do this because it's wrong and we don't treat Americans this way. And some you do need those guardrails against majorities have done terrible things in history. Slavery is but one of the terrible things that majorities of Americans supported. And that is why the Constitution does need to protect minority voices, minority beliefs, minority opinions, minority people from what the majority would do if it were left unfettered. I want to look forward a little bit to November. I mean, to, to the extent uh, that we're concerned that, the, that this is all more than cheap talk and we're concerned about a, a, a crisis in, in, uh, over who should be declared the victor of this election. Rick, what do what do um, what do entities need to prepare for? I mean, I know you have some recommendations about reestablishing certain political norms. I'm not sure that we are very likely to do that. What can what can elected officials in states do to make it less likely in the first place that there's going to be a dispute over who won? Sure. Well, you know, I should say that I was uh, part of a committee that issued a report in April called Fair Elections During a Crisis, and we came up with 14 recommendations. You can Google Fair Elections During a Crisis you'll find the report. One of the things that state officials need to do is they need to change their rules in those states that don't allow the processing of absentee ballots until election day. Everything but the counting should happen before election day. We don't want to have a long period of time when we don't know the winner, like we had in New York where it was weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, In Pennsylvania and Michigan especially, there was just a report in Michigan that um, in Detroit, their election administration is so poor that uh, I think in 72% of the precincts, the number of absentee ballots that were reported didn't match what uh, uh, was what the number showed in a, in a post-election audit. Uh, we knew about problems in Detroit in 2016, and it's not new. States need to give um, Jocelyn Benson, who's the Secretary of State of Michigan, uh, the authority over these weak areas. We do see this pattern in Democratic cities in swing states, where there's a a lot of incompetent election administration. So there's not a lot of time left uh, for this to happen. And the media also needs to be educating people so that they don't they understand that not every bit of incompetence that we see in election officials is an attempted deliberate fraud. In this kind of polarized atmosphere, there's always this um, idea to, that people are going to jump to the, the worst conclusions because they think the other side is cheating. And, and that is is very worrisome for our democracy. Rick Hassan, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of Irvine. Thank you for joining us, Rick. Thank you. I've been talking with Megan McArdle of The Washington Post and Dorian Warren of the Center for Community Change. We will be back to talk about the fiscal crisis in state and local governments. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. 
You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist at The Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. One consequence of the broken down talks between Republicans and Democrats in Washington about another coronavirus relief package is that state and local governments are not getting the additional aid many of them were expecting. Not even the much reduced amount that Republicans were willing to provide, let alone the Democrats' proposal of nearly a trillion dollars. A new analysis to be published in the National Tax Journal looks at the effects on cities across the country and says they could lose out on five to nine percent of their revenue on average due to the pandemic. But the effects are very uneven. Cities like Boston that rely heavily on property taxes should do pretty okay. Cities that rely a lot on sales tax or on direct aid from state governments or cities where tourism is a major industry can expect to do much worse. And for all the president's rhetoric about a blue state bailout, some of the cities that will be hit hardest are in Florida, where sales and hotel taxes paid by tourists are a cornerstone of government finances. In addition to forcing cutbacks in government services, these budget gaps will force governments to lay off workers and to spend less, and that could have negative effects on the private sector, further damaging the economy. Uh, Megan, this is part of why I find the Republican reluctance on a state and local aid package so strange. This isn't just a matter for New York or California. Do Republicans not understand that this is going to hit red states too, or is it that forcing spending cuts in cities and states is a feature rather than a bug for Republicans? We worry a lot that someone somewhere is getting away with something, and we worry too little about getting us over the crisis. Um, and and Republicans tend to do this a little bit more than Democrats do, but it is a bipartisan vice, but it is especially a stupid vice in this crisis. We don't expect anyone reasonably to plan for a hundred year pandemic. Um, and therefore worrying about the cities that you know didn't have enough money to cover that revenue uh, is not just uh, impractical or politically stupid, but it's ideologically uh, not even in tune with the kind of broader Republican story about encouraging people to take sensible risks and then, you know, making it easy for them to get up and pick themselves up and try again uh, when things do sometimes go wrong after they've taken all reasonable precautions. Dorian, should this to some extent be an opportunity to revisit whether state and local governments are doing their jobs efficiently? I I keep thinking about this interview a couple of months ago with Sarah Feinberg, who recently became the head of the agency that runs the subway and the buses in New York City. And she said, you know, this agency doesn't even have an org chart. There are people who work here who are paying, who don't don't actually work here. Uh, she said that the agency had had a hiring freeze and that people were getting around it by by giving people false job titles. You know, you hire someone, you say they're a conductor, you actually have them do data entry or be somebody's driver. And so, I mean, obviously, this is an extreme example, but it does seem to me like if we're talking about a bailout on the on the scale of a, of a trillion dollars for agencies, it, it, that part of the solution should be for them to look at what they're doing and say, is this really efficient? Do I need to be spending all the money that I am doing? Are there opportunities uh, for me to save 
money at a time when things are really tight throughout the economy? Of course, but that's not going to solve the scale of the problem. Yes. So to the agencies be more efficient? Probably in some places, but there's wide variation among the thousands of municipal governments and counties of this country. So it's hard to generalize from that one example. I do think we should be looking at what are the revenue sources for cities and counties and states at a fundamental level? Is it property tax? Is it state tax? Is it state aid? Is it fines and fees? I think the other thing to look at, frankly, is the constraints put on cities by state constitutions. These are balanced budget constraints. We don't say the federal government needs a balanced budget. We allow bailouts of industries like airlines and banks. But when it comes to cities, all of a sudden, and I do think there's an ideological inflection here because people imagine cities as just blue and they forget cities in Florida and Texas and Colorado. Why should cities have to always balance their budget? Why can't they go on to deficit spending or borrow more heavily from places? So I would say lift those constraints that don't exist for others. And let's have a standard. If we're going to bail out big industries that are profitable, why can't we bail out states and cities? Well, we should remember, though, that the, the reason that those those constraints exist is that unlike the, the federal government, if it gets itself into fiscal trouble, is not expecting someone else to bail them out. But these cities, if they get themselves into fiscal trouble, they are expecting the state to swoop in uh, with extra funds. And a lot of these cities, in fact, did behave irresponsibly um, with borrowing more money than they could reasonably pay back. Um, and that is why those constraints exist. So while I think that there are certainly arguments for helping cities out, I think the argument for relaxing their borrowing constraints when we know that, in fact, a lot of them would then just go hog wild, um, that's probably not where we want to go, even in the middle of a pandemic. It seems to me, Megan, like that's an argument for a more robust federal role here in helping cities finance their own activities, though, because, you know, you, you have what I think is a pretty good argument against uh, restricting uh, rules that, that limit uh, states and cities in, in many places from borrowing to fund, fund their ongoing operations. I think they can get themselves into trouble if they do that. But states and cities face the same economic cycles that the federal government does. And the federal government routinely, when the economy goes to hell, it borrows a lot more money rather than suddenly cutting back on services. So if you're not going to let the states and cities borrow to do that... They can run up rainy day funds, but as as you yourself note, uh, they 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 could not have expected and should not have run up such a large rainy day fund to deal with an economic crisis of this magnitude. It seems then you have to rely on the federal government to come in and smooth out those cycles, or otherwise you get this very counterproductive thing where the economy crashes and then you start having higher class sizes and fewer teachers and cutbacks in, you know, especially in red states where the government is already often fairly lean. The problem isn't feather bedding and too many employees. The problem is you're already under providing certain services and then you have to under provide them even more. So it seems like if you if you want to put state and local governments in a box and, and deny them some of these tools, then you actually have a stronger obligation to provide them some of these bailouts. And I, and I wonder if it should be more formulaic, if just automatically when the economy goes into a recession, you get an increase in federal uh, payments towards certain shared programs like Medicaid so that we don't have to have this ad hoc fight every time over who should get what amount of money. Well, that's not an unreasonable idea, but I would say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think this actually ties into a much broader debate about the way that we fund aid to state and local governments and blue states, rich blue states get more than their fair share if you want this to actually be a progressive system. And yes, red state governments do run lean, but those red state governments often are poorer and they just have less fiscal capacity. If you look at, you know, Kentucky or Mississippi, 
Um, for them to deliver the same kind of school services as New York City, they would have to be, their tax rates would have to be multiples of what New York City's are because local incomes are lower. And yet, when we go in and we decide how to distribute aid, you know, New York makes sure that it gets back almost as much as it puts in. And in fact, the left is super mad that New York is a, is a net donor at all, even though incomes in New York are so much higher than the red states. Um, and so I think there are actually larger conversations to be had about, you know, should we have a formula that says you don't get it in proportion to how powerful your senator is, you get it in proportion to local incomes. And that would mean that red, blue states would become more net donors than they are now. Um, I think there are a lot of conversations that you could have about how we handle these problems. Um, but no one wants to have those conversations in the middle of a pandemic. And frankly, they're not really about the pandemic at that point. I think that there should be aid um, to local state and local governments to do to provide kind of just necessary basic services. But that said, a lot of the aid that the federal government provides isn't about services. It's about making sure that unemployment insurance is, is up and that you know disability payments are up and, and those sorts of things, those automatic stabilizers. I'm in favor of those automatic stabilizers, but those things themselves are helping to shore up state budgets by making sure that that people who are unemployed can still pay their property taxes. Um, and so I'm not sure how much of it needs to be direct money going into state and local budgets. Should progressives be learning to love property tax? I mean, people have lots of complaints about property tax and that you can get inequities where you have towns where the property is more valuable and so the tax base is richer. Uh, a lot of people don't like that, you know, if you live on a fixed income, then you continue to have to pay the property taxes it increases. But the but the big benefit of property tax is its extreme stability. Uh, state and local governments, they know how much money they're going to collect from it every year. They don't have to worry about f- sales tax going up and down as it does with the economy. I mean, it seems like, you know, right now, places that rely more on property property tax, those places are, are weathering this better than anybody. Well, exactly. As we know, over half of the revenue for the city of Boston comes from property tax, and so they will be able to weather the storm. Whereas if you look at that 150 city average, only about a quarter of city revenue comes from property taxes. So yes, that should be on the table. But I also want to push us to go beyond what we already know in terms of property taxes or sales taxes. And thankfully, right, there's a court case that made it easier to collect the taxes from online retailers like Amazon. That's helped some places too. So what are the other kinds of new revenue sources we might imagine so that we can create other revenue streams that provide more stability, especially in terms of crisis? I think that, you know, to some extent, we do, there is going to be some suffering. There's no way to get around that. And I'm, I, you know, I, I hate to be the take your medicine type, but there are some businesses that are not going to come out the other side of this because COVID has accelerated trends that were, were happening already, right? Are movie theaters ever going to reopen, for example? Um, I think other businesses are going to be challenged for a while, bars and restaurants, anything that's sort of tourist focused. I think there, that even after there's a vaccine, there's going to be a while before people are ready to get back. And, and that needs to, you know, universities are another one where I think some of them probably aren't going to survive this because they were already on a long glide to death. Um, and, and COVID is going to accelerate that. And I'm not happy about that. I'm not triumphant, but I, I think it is a fact. And probably it is better if we adjust that more quickly than less rather than trying to kind of prop them up indefinitely. And so, you know, we, we, we do need to, to say we can't make all of the pain of COVID go away. Some of it is, is going to happen and some of it's going to be permanent. What we should focus on doing is making sure that no individual person is wrecked by this. Not necessarily that they get to keep the same job they have and love forever, but that they do get to adjust in a way that is not catastrophic where they also lose their house and their car 
are and so forth. Um, that should be our focus rather than just trying to keep the status quo and make, making sure that that no one is, that everyone is held harmless from the pandemic. I don't think that that is possible. And I don't even think it's desirable in a dynamic economy where, you know, we are constantly destroying old ways of doing things and creating new ones. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Dorian Warren, what's on your mind? Well, remember when the Republican Party supposedly stood for personal responsibility? And remember, too, when Democrats were so afraid of that narrative that the likes of Bill Clinton and even former President Obama went out of their way to lecture black men about, you guessed it, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility was always more than about just the ideological commitment. It was really about blaming people of color. But now, personal responsibility has devolved into a new formula, pure demagoguery plus pure corruption. The latest example is the arrest of Trump advisor Steve Bannon and three of his cronies. If you're keeping count at home, the criminality of Trump world is actually too many to count. Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. And by the way, in the personal responsibility days, we always got to see the mugshots, particularly of black men. I'd like to see the mugshot for these guys. And what's the Bannon case about? It's the formula demagoguery in the form of the border wall, and corruption in the form of stealing money from all the suckers they've sold on the idea that life in America would be better if we just kept out all those people from what they call S-hole countries. What they really mean is black or brown or Asian. They built Trump supporters out of $25 million to build a wall that, remember, the president said he was going to have Mexico pay for it, all the while lining their pockets and diverting the funds for jewelry, bolts, and even plastic surgery. From this pandemic, we should have learned that taking care of each other is at least as important as personal responsibility. Oh, yeah. And all the Trump people want to do is help themselves by any means necessary, including robbing their supporters blind. Megan McArdle, it's your soapbox. Colleges are freaking out as college students do exactly what you have predicted they would do after they returned, which is totally ignore uh, the rules against coming together in large groups. Already we are seeing outbreaks at college after college that are that are linked to fraternity parties, sorority parties, or just big off-campus parties that hundreds of students go to where they can cram together uh, and do a bunch of things that are known to spread COVID, as well as some things that may not have been proven to spread COVID, but probably do. Uh, college presidents who thought that anything else was going to happen when they reopened uh, were suffering from some kind of collective delusion um, as well as presumably retrograde amnesia about their own college experiences may be induced by COVID. Um, now, of course, many colleges looking at these outbreaks are shutting down. And the thing is that they did know that this was going to happen. No one really thought that college students were going to responsibly social distance and stay in their dorm rooms watching their, their classes on Zoom. Uh, the fact is that college presidents promised what they could not deliver because they were afraid to shut down for another year. They were afraid of the revenue loss. One can sympathize, but at the same time, essentially what they did was a kind of fraud on the college students who were promised the the opportunity to come back to campus and see their friends and are probably going to be sent home, possibly with COVID, to families who are even now who are now even less prepared to deal uh, with the risk than they were before the kids went back to school. 
For my rant, back during the presidential primaries, the New York Times couldn't make up its mind about who to endorse for the Democratic nomination. So they endorsed two candidates, and they endorsed neither of the two candidates who were the top two finishers in the actual race. They picked Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, two candidates who over-indexed with upscale college-educated voters of the sort who might sit on the New York Times editorial board. But there was this great moment in a video the New York Times produced as Joe Biden was coming up the elevator to probably not even really be seriously considered by the editorial board, uh, and Jack Jacqueline, the black security guard who was escorting him up in the elevator, looks at him and says, I love you. You're like my favorite. They take a selfie together. Uh, And this moment encapsulated two perfect things. One was the base of support that Joe Biden had in the party, more working class voters, more African-American voters that were underrepresented in the media conversation about the primary. That was the coalition that carried him through to his victory. And it also showed the way that Biden connects with ordinary citizens, making them feel like he cares about them even in these very brief interactions. There was this very nice moment at the Democratic National Convention, where they brought Jacqueline in to nominate Joe Biden for president of the United States. It was a nice little finger in the eye of the New York Times. They even gave the exclusive about the fact that they were going to do this to the Washington Post. That is all I have time for today. I want to thank Dorian Warren, Megan McArdle, and Rick Hassan. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 